I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and I have a number for you today. 39,773. That's how many people died from gun violence in the United States in 2017, according to the CDC. It's more than the number of people who died from automobile accidents. That was 38,659. It's a lot more than the 5,698 people who died from HIV that year, or the 5,611 who died from viral hepatitis. Gun violence deaths are in the spotlight this week because of twin mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. Of course, most gun deaths aren't because of mass shootings. The gun violence death rate in Washington, D.C., where I'm recording, is about 16 deaths per 100,000 people. That's almost four times the national average, and that's driven by homicides and suicides. The death rate in our country wildly outpaces the death rate in others from firearms. Deaths from gun violence in the United States are more than 70 times higher than the rate in the United Kingdom. Dozens of medical groups in the past few years have said this is a public health crisis. The American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, to name a few. And thousands of doctors have been mobilized on social media since last year in their unhappiness over how this has been treated. So I got curious. I asked the offices of all 16 physicians who serve in Congress, do those members also think that gun violence is a public health crisis? The two Democratic physicians immediately got back to me. Here's a clip from Dr. Ami Bear from California speaking a few years ago about the need for the CDC to do research into gun violence. Over the last two decades, Congress has really banned the ability of us to do research into gun violence. You know, as a scientist, I think we really ought to be studying the root cause of these mass shootings, what's happening, so we can understand if the impact of the laws that we're actually passing are going to make a difference. Now, here's what the 14 Republican doctors in Congress have to say about gun violence being a public health crisis. I didn't hear back from their offices on that question. That includes the offices of members like Dr. Mark Green, who condemned Antifa terrorism last week, Senator Bill Cassidy, who's continued pushing for drug price legislation. This isn't just a split in Congress. The last Surgeon General, Obama appointee Vivek Murthy, appeared on this podcast in 2016. Here's what he had to say then. What I've said before uh, is what I believe now, which is that gun violence is absolutely a public health issue. I won't shy away from saying that. Uh, it makes some people nervous when I say that. Frankly, I don't care uh, because the truth is the truth. Here's what the office of the current Surgeon General, Trump appointee Jerome Adams, has to say about gun violence as a public health issue. That's as of Wednesday afternoon. I haven't heard back on questions that I first sent to his office on Sunday. President Donald Trump this week suggested that we should look at gun violence as a mental health issue. To help understand what the research says, I talked to Dr. Amy Barnhorst, who's been a leader in connecting firearm violence to mental health. You'll hear that conversation now. Dr. Amy Barnhorst, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thank you for having me. You study gun violence and the connection with healthcare, specifically mental health. How did you get into this work? Well, I never really intended to go this direction. I was a psychiatrist here at UC Davis, and I work in a psychiatric hospital and a crisis unit where we evaluate people who are brought in on involuntary holds, oftentimes because somebody perceived them to be a danger to themselves or to somebody else. And so my job is to decide whether or not those people need to be psychiatrically hospitalized and if we can treat them for whatever mental illness is making them dangerous and then get them back to the community. 
And my other job is that I'm a mom of two girls. So when Sandy Hook happened, my kids were in third and fourth grade. And like so many parents, I was just totally freaked out and scared. And I felt really helpless and powerless. And I was hearing all this stuff on the news, like, this is a mental health problem. Why did the mental health system not intervene with this guy? And it was so frustrating to me because I knew from being a psychiatrist in that setting, these guys don't come to our attention. There's not really commitment laws in place that allow us to hold them. There's not really treatments for the things that are making them want to kill people. So I was really upset by how much was being put on the mental health system. And so I got involved by starting to write an op-ed for the Sacramento Bee. And Garen Wintemute, who was one of my emergency room attendings in medical school, had happened to be in the emergency room one day when I was on call. I had no idea that he was also one of the nation's most prominent gun violence researchers and had been doing that work for years. But I overheard him having a conversation with someone about it. And I just butted right in and said, hey, I want to get involved in this because I'm really tired of people blaming it on mental illness. I want to get involved. And so Garen very much helped me write the op-ed and um, got me connected with some other people who were doing similar kinds of work. And it turned out that there was really a need for a voice from the psychiatry community and from somebody who worked in mental health, because I think it makes a lot of sense to the layperson that these people must have a mental illness, because like, why would you do this? But um, it was hard for them to think through the nuts and bolts of what mental illness would they have? What are the implications of that? What could we actually do about it? And so that was kind of how my voice came to be. UC Davis has become a, a driving force behind gun violence research. You mentioned Dr. Wintemute founded the Firearm Violence Research Center. There are several dozen researchers who work with the center. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Barnhorst, my understanding is you were behind California's gun violence restraining order, which took effect a few years ago and allows law enforcement to remove firearms from people who could be a threat. So if my if my roommate was making comments about how he'd like to take his rifle to work because he's angry at his boss, the police could take steps to intervene. Is that is that the correct way to think about yeah. it? Yeah, and Dr. Wintemute and I worked on that one together um, with a number of other interested parties and stakeholders. But yeah, I think that's a really good example of how um, when people come from all different perspectives, we can come together and come up with a good piece of legislation that could really make a difference. So California has that legislation. Are other states following suit? Yeah, a lot of them are. Um, and I think we saw, uh, you know, Conne so Connecticut and Indiana had some kind of similar legislation that was related for many years before California came up with the gun violence restraining orders, we call it here. And then quickly after California passed it, Washington and Oregon passed what they call extreme risk protection orders, um, which is very similar. And then after the Parkland shooting, I think 10 to 15 other states uh, passed similar legislation because the Parkland shooting was a really great example and not the first one we've had of a, a shooting perpetrated by a kid that put the made the hair stand up on the back of everyone's neck. The kids at his school were scared of him. The police had been to his house a bunch of times. Everybody kind of knew he was that kid who was going to do something, but he hadn't committed a crime. He didn't seem like he was mentally ill. He hadn't been hospitalized. Um, so they, they didn't really have much to do. There were no tools at the time to intervene. And the, a similar situation happened with the Isla Vista shooting, where it was this kid with no real mental health history to speak of, no prohibitory criteria that would have stopped him from legally purchasing all the guns and ammo that he bought, no criminal record, never been hospitalized. 
And people got really worried about the kind of stuff he was posting online. So at one point, his parents even called law enforcement and said, hey, can you go check on our on this kid? We don't think he's doing very well. When they went to the house, he put on a really good face and he didn't seem mentally ill. They didn't see any evidence that a crime had been committed. They didn't check about his firearm purchasing history, but even if they had, they would have seen he, he did purchase a bunch of guns, but all very, very much within the limits of the law that he was allowed to own at that time. So there wouldn't have been anything they could really do. And the idea behind the GVRO or the ERPO, as we're calling it in other states, is that when somebody appears to be a threat of immediate violence or suicide, that a concerned family member or law enforcement in most states can petition for this order to just have their guns temporarily removed. And then they can get them back. When things settle down, they'll have a chance to appear in court and argue their side of the case. Um, There's no criminal record that goes along with this. It's a civil order. And it happens very quickly at that time of crisis. Let's let's stay on the the legislation and research idea for a second. How partisan is interest in, in, say, gun violence restraining orders? You mentioned some of the states that have pursued these. Those tended to be Democratic-led states. They do. And I, I don't know how partisan it's getting down on the, you know, the levels um, within the legislature, but they do tend to be Democratic states. So Washington, Oregon, California, um, Nevada has en- enacted one, as has Colorado and Florida. Um, but yeah, a lot of them are the blue states. The CDC was effectively banned from funding gun violence research for 20 years. House Democrats are leading an effort to now pour tens of millions of dollars of new funding into this work. But why does it matter so much that CDC couldn't do work here? Did, didn't UC Davis fill the gap, for instance? Well, it was it was hard because there was no federal funding available because the Dickey Amendment was interpreted as not allowing anyone to do any kind of work that could be used for, you know, to lobby um, for gun control. so and, and you're referencing the 1996 J. Uh, Dickey representative or Republican representative, his amendment that yes. uh, was, was perceived um, as, as effectively shutting down CDC's work into gun violence. Yeah, and, and effectively did shut down the funding. And I think he has since come out and said how much he regrets that. Um, but it's been really hard because there hasn't been a lot of money in it and there haven't been a lot of people doing the work. And the reason that matters is that gun violence is a, incredibly complex problem. And there are so many ways to combat it. I mean, I love the idea that it could all be mental illness and then we could just fix our mental health system and we would be done. It is not that simple at all. There are um, so many different ways that we need to approach this. And we don't even know what all those ways are because we don't have the research to inform the policy. So I think what has happened is these this daily steady trickle of gun violence deaths, of suicides, of domestic violence incidents, of um, homicides that tend to happen in more impoverished neighborhoods, of murders that happen in the context of crime. These just happen every day, and they go fairly unnoticed until there's some big mass shooting, and it makes everyone feel like, oh my gosh, this really could happen to me. And then there's a big outcry for funding and research and advocacy. But the problem is when everybody who is making policy feels like they need to do something right away, to appease their constituents after a mass shooting or some horrible event, there's not time to really think um, carefully about the ramifications of things. And often there's not data to inform 
the policy. So it makes it really hard to pass good sound policy. And that's why the research is so important. And we, we now know from some of the stuff that Garen Wintemute and Jeff Swanson and others have been doing that things like gun violence restraining orders really do reduce suicide deaths and really do stop mass shootings. How would you compare the level of knowledge on something like gun violence to, say, a common healthcare problem, uh, the flu, to to uh, heart disease, to something where there's understanding, everyone's on board, we need to do research into this? I mean, heart disease, like, it's such a non-political topic. Like, everyone agrees it's bad, nobody wants it, everybody knows someone who has it, and we all want to fight against it. Gun violence, you would think, I mean, it's it's violence, it's people dying, um, you would you would think it would be similar, but there's this other side of things of people's Second Amendment rights and the NRA and the whole you know gun industry that really has infiltrated people's minds in terms of how they want to see gun violence as a problem. And so there's a lot more resistance to researching and enacting good gun violence policy than there would be to say like a treatment for cancer or diabetes. So are we talking about dozens of studies a year are being done on gun violence versus maybe hundreds or thousands on heart disease? Is there a way to quantify how limited the work has been? Yeah, I think there is. And I don't actually know what those numbers would be. Um, And I think the gun violence research has really picked up, you know, thanks to people like Garen, thanks to funding from the state of California who thought it was important enough to to fund this on their own if the federal government wasn't going to do it. I think this this spate of mass shootings in the last, you know, five or 10 years has really inspired a whole new generation of doctors and researchers and public health people to get involved in gun violence. And so there's a, there's a new crop of folks. And, um, and I, and I think that's really exciting because I think that's going to come with more money, more information and, and better policy. The, the National Collaborative on Gun Violence Research this week told me that they funded 17 new gun policy research projects. I believe UC Davis is among them. Great. Good. Doctor, has your work suffered from focusing on gun violence? Have you faced retribution from the NRA or, or angry gun owner? <laughs> um, you know, not personally. Not I should say not in person. Um, although I'm always surprised that at some of the comments I get on, you know, blog posts or opinion pieces or things I've written online that to me seem very evidence-based and, um, you know, non-political. And it, it certainly attracts uh, a type of person who sees anything that they think might restrict their right to own a gun and uh, make some really out there comments. What's something that you wrote that, that you thought was non-political but it provoked an angry <laughs> comment? Um, even something as simple other as, than everything. Yeah, exactly. Everything. Uh, the you know the the New York Times piece about how the mental health system can't stop mass shooters. All I really did was walk through what happens when somebody like that gets admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Um, it was it was fairly factual. Or um, another piece about how I wrote that uh, is called "Hate's Not a Mental Illness," and it talks about what is and what's not a mental illness and why that matters in the context of mass shootings and how we intervene on these people. Um, but yeah, I mean, people just sort of pick up that word firearm and they think, oh my God, this is, I have to make all these comments about um, really uninformed opinions about how clearly this is a mental illness. They can just tell and it has nothing to do with the guns and it really brings people out of the woodwork. It's a, it's a trigger word uh, yeah. in America. Part, <laughs> so to speak. Part in the choice of, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
President Donald Trump has suggested after the most recent mass shootings that mental health is a major factor. We must reform our mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. Do you agree with the president? Uh, you know, I, I really don't. I think that hatred actually is a factor, but I don't think the mental illness is a big factor. But I understand why he said that and why it's easy for people to believe. Because again, how could you possibly think that nothing was wrong in the minds of somebody who would, you know, go open fire in a public space or a school or a church? I mean, it, it's it's easy to just sort of use circular reasoning and say, well, of course they must be mentally ill because if they weren't, why would they do that? But what people don't understand, I think, if they're, if they're not really well-educated in mental health is that mental illness is a specific thing. It's like you don't go to the ER and they say, oh, you're just sick. They say, oh, you have the flu or you're having a heart attack. There's specific diagnoses with specific criteria you have to meet. So just because somebody's weird or they behave badly or they do something we disapprove of or something that's violent, that doesn't mean they have a mental illness. Mental illnesses are things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder or major depressive disorder. And most of these guys who perpetrate these acts, and again, not all, but most of them don't appear to have a pre-existing diagnosis of these things. Most of them don't seem like they would necessarily meet the criteria for a diagnosis. And um, even if they do, a lot of them do have symptoms of depression or anxiety, but depression and anxiety don't make you go out and shoot up a school. So I, th I think it's an easy thing to believe. It's a great solution that would kill two birds with one stone because the natural consequence of it is, or the, the logical next step is, if we could just fix the mental health system, we'd not only take care of that problem in our country, but we'd also take care of mass shootings. And it's a convenient distractor from the other argument, which is that all of these guys do have one thing in common, and that thing... 100% contributes to them being able to be a mass shooter. And that's a gun. This, this isn't just a partisan issue, and it isn't just about mental health. Joe Biden, candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination this week, suggested that video games are a problem. It is not healthy to have these games teaching kids that, you know, with all of the dispassionate notion that you can shoot somebody and just, you know, sort of blow their brains out. It, 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 but, but video but, games but, but, are popular in Japan and they No, they are. That's my of. point. But it's not in and of itself the reason why we have this carnage on our streets. Doctor, is there any evidence to suggest a link between mass shootings and video games? There's not a suggested link between mass shootings and video games. But like with mental illness, it's not quite as simple as they're completely unrelated. Um, there is some evidence to show that playing violent video games increases people's aggression, particularly in the, in the brief period right after playing. It's really hard to go from that to saying this makes people commit mass shootings. But I think we're hearing both sides of the argument here. One is that video games are the cause, and two is that there's no link between violence and video games. Um, it's probably closer to the second, but there is some link between increased aggressive behavior and playing violent video games. However, 
the effect size is really small, meaning if it's 100,000 kids that you take and you have them play three hours of violent video games, they're not all going to become aggressive. Maybe two of them who wouldn't have been before are going to become aggressive. And aggression is very different from perpetrating a mass shooting. Aggressive could be something like, you know, you kick a wall when you're frustrated or you yell at somebody. So there is no link that we know of between violent video game playing and mass shooting, but it could be one of those things that contributes very, 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 very slightly to the problem. We just don't have enough data. I, I, I want to set aside the aggression piece and just push on, on the idea of acclimation. Airplane pilots practice on flight simulators. The, the military has long mm-hmm. used first-person shooting games to either recruit soldiers or train them. Couldn't there be some element of young men who are playing violent video games just get used to the idea of shooting as as entertainment? Absolutely. It is possible. And fortunately, we fortunately in this country, mass shootings are rare enough that it's really hard to get good statistically significant data about that kind of stuff. But it's not implausible. And we do have some evidence, although again, it's not all of the studies that are showing this and the effect size is small, but that it increases aggression. So what could that aggression turn into? We don't know. I think, again, like with mental illness, where if we fix the mental health system completely and cured everybody with mental illness, we would eradicate about 4% of violence in our society. My suspicion would be that with video games, the contribution to societal violence is so tiny, even if it does exist, that you know we'd get rid of another drop in the bucket of community violence if we got rid of video games. Last year, physicians were mobilized after the NRA, the National Rifle Association, suggested on Twitter that physicians needed to stay in their lane and not wade into the issue of firearm uh, violence and death. What has the mobilization of medical groups accomplished so far, and what still needs to happen? Well, I think one of the things it's done is it's really raised awareness in um, in the medical community about how much this really is our lane. You know, even people who just sort of experienced that or uh, believed it on a subconscious level, they're like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely my lane. I mean, I'm the one who goes home with blood on my shoes every night. I'm the one who has to tell that mom that her kid was shot and killed. I'm the one who has to find out from the coroner that the patient I saw two months ago has committed suicide. So it's very much our lane. And I think it's really rallied uh, providers together and made people really motivated to to find ways to make change. Um, and, and I think physicians can be really, really powerful voices in this sense, because even though we sometimes forget this, our patients do actually listen to us. You know, if we say well, you need to quit smoking or cut down on, you know, red meat, whatever it is, oftentimes they really can make lifestyle changes. So we can be an important point of contact for things like, listen, you have a, you know, a depressed adolescent in your house, you need to store your firearm safely. Or, hey, your, you know, your nephew who comes over was making threats against his school, you need to get rid of your guns. And also physicians understand public health problems and gun violence is very much a public health problem. We understand the complexities of that and all the different kinds of people we need to get in there and contribute and help out like policymakers and epidemiologists and public health people and attorneys and researchers. We've done this with other things like cigarette smoking and this public health approach has really worked. And I think that's the one we need to take for firearms. This is a Politico podcast. There are people 
listening to this show who work on the Hill, work around the Hill, if you could get in front of a lawmaker right now, what would you tell her? What what does Congress need to do tomorrow to make gun violence less of a problem in the United States? Can I have two things? <laughs> the first would be extreme risk protection orders. And I think these are a very, very powerful tool to prevent not just the tragedies like we saw this last week, but also firearm suicides, which actually outnumber firearm homicides two to one in this country. They are a great way to kind of bypass all of the other information that people don't have and wish they had about the why and really get in there and prevent people who are dangerous from accessing weapons. Um, and then the second one I would say is backing up a little bit for the longer game and solidifying our background check process in this country so that there are no longer private party sale loopholes, so that every legal firearm purchase has to go through a background check, and getting states to really get all of the relevant data into the NICS database so that when a background check does happen, everything is in there. That process, in theory, is great. In practice, it really needs to be tightened up. And the start is with universal background checks. Last question. More than 30 people were killed in El Paso and Dayton in the mass shootings. Dozens more were injured. Have you seen any new or meaningful developments after this weekend's tragedies, or is it truly just more of the same? Um, you know, I, I think the fervor hasn't died down from this weekend enough for us to see what remains, what kind of policy will really get teeth and move forward what people will stay engaged and involved, what new ideas we'll come up with. But I will say that I think after the Parkland shooting and after the Sandy Hook shooting, those were really two big milestones in terms of gun violence prevention movements, of rallying a whole new group of people to get involved, coming up with some really important new policy ideas, spreading old policy ideas like the gun violence restraining order to states that we would have never thought would have considered that kind of legislation. Um, but that then embraced it. So I really, and we saw, you know, this whole group of adolescents getting really involved in gun violence prevention, speaking out to their legislators, um, really making their their views known. And I, and I think that that is really important is that we're seeing this, this real groundswell of support. We're seeing more research being funded. We're seeing more researchers being interested in doing the work. And um, we're seeing more new ideas out there. So I'm very hopeful that, if anything good can come out of this horrible week, that we might see some meaningful new policy and some good new research to help us come up with more policy. Well, Dr. Amy Barnhorst, thank you for taking a moment out from your research to join us and talk about public health and gun violence. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Dr. Amy Barnhorst from UC Davis for making time for the conversation. Kevin McLean, who helped us on the ground in California, and Jenny Ament for producing, as always. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. My favorite is Overcast. Yours may differ. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com by email if you have suggestions. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player very soon. Thanks for listening.